Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to the Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And I'm going to start you off, Den Carthage. So he says, Alistair Campbell mentioned the much-missed Charles Kennedy in a recent podcast. Are there any other political figures you miss and wish were still around, Alistair? Oh, the one that I really wish Philip Gould was still around. Tell us a bit about him. Well, Philip, Philip was... He was my closest friend, really, and he died a few years ago. And um, he, Philip was a was a, a pollster, but as Tony said at his um, one of the events after he died, to describe him as a pollster is sort of like you know describing I don't know Diego Maradona as a bloke who kicks a ball around. I mean, Philip was a had a proper strategic mind, and he would the other thing he would have absolutely. Although you and I get very kind of down about the way that politics is, Philip would have loved it because it would just represent such a sort of challenge. Tell us a little bit about him. I mean, he, 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 how did he die young? I mean, did he, what, what happened? He, had, he, he got esophageal cancer. Oh, and am I right in saying you sometimes mention his daughter on the show? Yeah, that's Georgia. Georgia Gould is um, his daughter, who's the leader of Camden Council. And I hope one day we'll be an MP. But like a lot of, I think like a lot of people who go into politics is discovering you can actually get an awful lot done if you lead a council as big as Camden. So one figure I miss, I suppose she's not fully political figure, but was an amazing figure in, in my childhood growing up was a lady called Daphne Parks, who was, um, was the first senior woman in the British Secret Service. Yeah. And yeah, I know all about her. Yeah. yeah. Incredible figure. And, and, um. Well, Rory, you're getting, you're getting close to outing yourself here. <laughs> I don't know. She was a friend of my dad's. My, my father was a spy. Oh, okay. okay. So that, that was the link in there. But she was, um, <laughs> she, she, she was, uh, really not, not just, uh, remarkable in terms of the fact that she'd led the, Secret Service station in the Congo during the Congo coups, but mm. she was very, very canny in the way that she analyzed interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. She's one of those people, I think you're a bit like this, actually, who, who maybe I'm a bit like this too, who become more left-wing as she got older. I think I got the impression that as she got into her 70s and 80s, she became more and more kind of radical in her mm. views, which was my real political hero, who I can't claim to miss because um, – <laughs> but the real example of this was Gladstone, who went from yeah. being the most extreme conservative in his 20s, sort of pro-slavery, to being the most incredible radical in his 80s. Well, you've just got to keep going on your journey, Rory, and eventually we'll get you in the Labour Party. That's the most important thing. Now, <laughs> Julie Fair, should the Tories be pressed by Keir Starmer to take drugs tests after cocaine was found at number 10 and Chevening? Limited number of possible perpetrators. Why don't they want to clear their names? Is this drugs thing? I mean, I'm going to tell you something that you will probably find absolutely extraordinary, Rory. I've never taken 
an illegal substance. I've taken way too much of legal substances, particularly alcohol. And why, why is that? Why have you, why have you never taken drugs? I always thought you were a bit kind of rock and roll. No, because I just, when I was at university, I hated the people who took drugs and I used to sort of, I had so many chips on my shoulder. I've actually, here's something else that's going to surprise you. Other than on television and in films, I've never actually seen cocaine in my entire life. The, the chips on your shoulder is that you associated drugs when you were at university with posh people. You thought posh yeah, people took drugs. I did. I did. Which isn't really true, right? No, it's not true. It's not true. Um, but, but, well, I think it was, it was true there. And I, 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 and I think, I think there, there does seem to me, you may know better than I do, there does seem to be a kind of a real sort of drugs thing inside the Conservative Party, which I never noticed in, in the Labour Party when we were in government. I didn't, I honestly didn't notice it in the Conservative Party. I may be very square. There was definitely true that, um, Michael Gove and David Cameron and George Osborne seem to have been part of a set at university and after university who I think reports have said use drugs. Mm. Um, and Michael Gove sounds more like he did one or two geeky experiments at some Notting Hill party. But I definitely never felt in the House of Commons that there was any kind of open drug culture. I never saw people boasting about taking drugs in the House of Commons. Or- but it is, I, I would have been amazed if, I, if there had been drug taking inside Downing Street when we were there. But there does seem to be, you know, the, the, and this thing in Chevening, I, I honestly, I really, if that was a school or if that was a hospital or if that was a, those people, the, the police would want to know, well, where's this? Where so, is- so the claim, the claim is that somebody's told the press that some white powder was found. Oh, I thought it was more than that. I thought it was people in Chevening say that they'd come across the the, the remains of co- of cocaine taking. Whatever sort of, basically most MPs in my experience are sort of geeky, serious student politicians who are very, very aware from the time they're 17 about their public reputation and, and are pretty, pretty, they're not very hip. Mm. I think that the number who are uh, rock and rolling and taking drugs, I think is pretty, pretty limited. I mean, there was this alleged story that Noel Gallagher says he took drugs in the Queen's toilet in Downing Street, which we've, we've talked about the Queen's toilet in Downing Street before, but I don't know whether I believe that. Alice Kavanagh, given the current discussion on the housing crisis and long-awaited planning reform stroke levelling up bill, do you think we should be opening up the green belt for building new houses, Alistair? Well, we're back to another massive political problem. I think no. I think no is my answer because I, 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 I do believe in the protection of, of landscape. However, I think that there will come a point where, well, put it this way, I think this whole nimbyism in approach to planning and house building has got to be challenged and it can only be challenged by political leadership. But it's a tough one, isn't it? Because there's yeah. only that much land to build on. And I think, obviously, someone like me, very, very pro-Greenbelt, I actually, and I think we talked about it before, I would like a political party to commit to turn the green belt into the largest forest in England. It would be an amazing thing. Mm. You could get hundreds of millions of trees in there. It would transform air quality, temperature, carbon capture all the way around our capital city. You could open it up as an extraordinary place for people to go and visit. A lot of the green belt looks a bit kind of drab and depressing at the moment. And it could be the great legacy for the future. So if any, if any politicians are listening to this, please sign up for that. But at the same time, we are rubbish at building medium rise in places like London. If you look at a place like Paris, those beautiful streets are often six, seven-story buildings. And you can see actually in some of the fanciest bits of London, like up and down Sloan Avenue, for example, South Ken, Chelsea, you get those big mansion flats, eight, nine stories. They look very attractive. You put a lot of people in there. 
The real problem is the sprawling sort of semi-detached and terrace suburbs, which never go above two stories, which consume so much land around London. Now, Rory, Connor Hayward asks, in your recent Albert Hall live show, and by the way, thank you to everybody who came. It was a, it was a thoroughly enjoyable evening. Rory defined both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump as evil. What would your definition of evil therefore be? So for me, it is a total absence of any moral calculation. Is it possible, though, to have an absence of moral calculation but not do bad? Or do you think if you have no calculation, moral calculation, you can, you can only do bad things? I think it's close to the way that I would think about evil. I think actually that's sort of oddly what the devil is. I mean, I'm not a theologian here, but I think that it's about a total refusal to take seriously any moral rules, any sense of obligation to another person. Mm. And of course, what, what Boris Johnson does very well is present it as a sort of childlike selfishness, as though mm. he's a wicked toddler splashing water out of the bathtub. Yeah, But yeah. when you do it as an adult, I think the right word is evil because it's that total absorbing egotism, which I think is the core of devilry. I th- mm. says he suddenly sounding like some mad Puritan. Um, mm. but, but I do, th- I do think that, that part of being an adult, part of being a human, is getting beyond that childlike stage and acknowledging the existence of other human beings. And that's not what he's meant to do. Trump, likewise, has, he, he comes, across, comes across as a child, doesn't he? Well, they're sort of frozen, aren't they, in time? They're still living. Mm. I think if you were a Jungian, they're still living this kind of magical, heroic vision of themselves. They haven't sort of gone into their midlife. They haven't recognized their mortality, their limits, their death. Mm. They're still living a sort of cartoon life. Yeah. Yeah. Your turn. Go on then. Johnny Sells, should the railways be renationalized? So Johnny came to the Albert Hall event. He's a, he's a tenor. I would want to say a distinguished tenor who actually had some serious things to say about the acoustics in the Albert Hall. Oh, did he? Yeah. And he, amazing actually, the acoustics in the Albert Hall, because it famously is just a colossally difficult thing to get the acoustics right on. Those, so those, do you see those UFOs that were floating over our heads? Those huge sort of sound bafflers to try to deal with them. I thought they were real UFOs. Anyway, Johnny Sells asks you, should the railways be renationalized? Well, there's got to be huge reform of our railways. Whether whether renationalization, as Johnny envisages it, railways run purely by the state, owned and run by the state, I think that is such a step and is probably way more complicated than, than we realize. But there's got to be a government grip of our railways. Um, and the system... Did you have any issues with railways when you were in... Was it, what, what were the challenges around railways during during the sort of Campbell Blair era? I don't really. I mean, I don't remember railways, but perhaps we didn't uh, focus on them as much as we should. I mean, we, you know, John Prescott was the sort of big transport guy for much of that time, and his whole thing was about an integrated transport system. And I, I think actually we did do some good modernising stuff on, on on transport. But I do feel that the railways today, my sense of them is that they do not work as well as they used to. Um, now, whether that includes in an era when it was good old British Rail, I don't know what the cost would be. I don't know what the legalities would be. But I, I wrote my new European column last week about a recent journey, and it wasn't even that terrible. It was. It's back to this point about we're just sort of so used to now stuff not really working quite as well as it should. And they've got this wonderful, shiny new departures board at Euston Station. 
and they have green is the trains on time and ready to go blue is uh, you got to wait and red is it's cancelled and i was there a day this was before the coal snap and it wasn't a strike day and it was entirely blue and red yeah and eventually i got to scotland about you know several hours after i was meant to it's pretty pretty depressing isn't it yeah should we take a break absolutely elevate every morning with tommy john's second skin underwear the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to the Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Now, here's one. I love this question. Peter Ellis, you are both clearly highly energetic and driven individuals. Do you ever say to yourselves, you know what, I just can't be asked? Oh, that's a good question. Good question. What, 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 when do you say, you know what, I can't be asked? When I'm at the end of a day, going meant to be going out to a social engagement that suddenly I wish I hadn't agreed to. That happens. That happens quite a lot. So my my one, which I'm, sh- I'm I'm sure you get a lot of, is that because and I get criticised for this a lot on rest politics. I'm travelling a lot, mostly for for the the charity that I'm working with, and that means that I'm away from my family a lot. And it also means that people very kindly ask me to do things, and I make the mistake of thinking, well, I can't 
do anything in the next four months because <laughs> I can't see it. So I'll agree to do it. In- oh, Rory, no, no, no. You mustn't <laughs> do that thing we say, you know, give me some choice of days. You make them give you the date and you tell them that you're going to be in Connecticut that day. Exactly. Well, my mistake is I'm like, oh, I think things will have calmed down by June. June will come around. I'm like, oh, oh no, I've agreed to talk to my mother's cruel sewing club in um <laughs> In Scotland, or I've, I've agreed to go and, you know, do, do a thing for a nice, you know, so it's often really good causes, but I'm getting at the moment in my inbox at something like, I don't know, I, I think last week, maybe 250 different invitations to speak. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, every, and every single one of them says it'll only take you an hour. It'll only take a couple of hours of your time, but it's always more. Uh, we, we shouldn't sound too curmudgeonly about it, Roy. We, people like to hear what we say. So that's a good thing. But there are many, there are sometimes, I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's stuff that you put in the diary because when you put it in the diary, it doesn't seem that important. Okay, Ian, why does Norway have an oil-related 1.5 trillion sovereign wealth fund and the UK hasn't? You were both parts of government, which could have put one in place at some point. Why didn't it happen? Was there any discussion of that with you? Yeah, well, we, we, we mentioned this on the, on the main podcast this week, didn't we? Um, I think Norway, it, it is an extraordinary success story, what they've done with their sovereign wealth fund. And, and, uh, I wish the UK had done that. I think it would have been a very, very sensible thing to do. Did you talk about it? I then? don't remember. I don't, rem- I don't think we did. I don't remember whether, whether there was stuff going on at the treasury that I don't know about. I don't know. I think it's I a very untreasury idea, isn't it? I mean, I think it's worked out brilliantly for the Norwegians. But, and for others, there are other countries that have done. Yep. I mean, no, it's the obvious ones, the Gulf. But you know, I think some of the the some of the poorer countries in Asia have got you know what what, what would they are effectively wealth funds where they you know they invest their own money and they 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 invest in businesses and they they do it in a way that keeps the thing ticking over. The traditional treasury argument against it would have been there's no particular reason to think the government is able to invest its money any better than anyone else. So why should the government turn itself into a sort of investment bank? Why doesn't it just raise its taxes, spend its money every year and keep on relying on taxes rather than income from a big fund? While we're talking, I'm looking at this thing. If you go onto something called nbim.no. Yeah. Okay. And you can see the, the value of the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund in real time. Have a look at it. Okay. All right. Let's, let's N- have a look at nbim.no. And just as you watch it, just Norway gets richer and richer I'm, I'm every second you're now. watching it's it. Going, yeah. It's literally going up. It's just gone up to another billion. It sometimes goes down, but it's very rare. <laughs> okay. Well, they're obviously geniuses. Now, listen, Chris Morham, you mentioned that Macron uses the two form when talking about God's agent on earth, the Pope. But I learned from listening to Les Miserables in French that the French use the two form when talking to God himself, oh my Lord. they talk to him like they talk to their father. It isn't an arrogant thing. Isn't that brilliant? And I think that is right, isn't it? Because I think one of the radical things of the way that Jesus Christ talked about God, the word he uses, Abba, effectively means daddy. And that there's something very, very radical at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, which which sounds very grand in English, our father, but is, is much closer to a child talking informally to their father. Hallowed be thy name. Yeah, well, we are very good. Thank you. Thank you. There's the linguist again. You got it. (laughs) But I I assumed that, you know, I wonder wonder if Macron was using the two form when he was, say, to Mbappe, hey, (laughs) give us a hug. (laughs) That's interesting. But, Rory, it's quite interesting what's happening. That's twice that you basically become sort of bit archbishopish in your utterings today. 
quite interesting. I don't think that's really the future. Let's try to move it on to something that gets me off that. Kieran Seal, a good name for the question. I've been trialing out the various London swim spots and went to West Reservoir Swimming Centre the other week. It was 6.9 degrees and I wore a full wetsuit and boots. Where does Alistair swim for it to be 3.5 degrees? And does he wear a wetsuit, asks the seal. Well, seal, I swim most days at the Parliament Hill Lido, where today it was five degrees. Two days ago, it was one degree. Ooh. And when I jumped in, um, and by the way, we, we also had an email from somebody who said I was very irresponsible in explaining that I jump in to the cold water. That is not the best way to go in. But, and I think that's fair enough if you've not done it before, but I've always done that. So I think I agree that if you're doing it for the first time, that would not be sensible. But I actually landed on a, on a sort of lump of ice. Oh, I wear, I don't wear a wetsuit. I wear, I wear little gloves and little feet. Um, and, but I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, listen, there's one question which I, I was really pleased to see, which I want to clear up because it really annoyed me because I saw this as well. Jeff Spink, question for Alistair. I've been watching that great beacon of historical accuracy, The Crown. The episode on the Hong Kong handover suggests that the heir to the throne had to sit in business while TB and you lot were all in first class. <laughs> right. And I watched that and it was utterly ridiculous. So Charles, the whole sort of narrative was that Charles was sort of, you know, the great, you know, the great guy coming along. He's the future. And along comes Tony Blair and Tony Blair thinks he's the future. And it literally had this shot of Prince Charles being settled into his business class seat while we were all at the front getting into first class. Anyway, I can tell you, Jeff Spink, it did not happen. Oh, all right. Um, final question, I think, coming to the end of this, because of the time of year we are. Murray Mintz, what is your favourite Christmas song? Mine is Let It Snow, but she also loves playing Driving Home for Christmas on my commute or in heavy snow. Alistair. It'll be lonely this Christmas, lonely and cold. It'll be so, so cold. Without you to hold this Christmas. Beautiful. Thank it's you. It's well, sad. It's a bit sad. No, but I, you did it very well. And it was great to hear you belting it out in the Albert Hall. We didn't get quite enough singing from you in the Albert Hall. But what, did, um, what was your favourite Christmas song? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, guys, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, that. Difficult one. You can't just say difficult one. There isn't a song called difficult one. Well, I, I like Christmas carols, I suppose. I mean, I, I suppose that's they, okay. That's it's right. Um, I, can play, I can play quite a few Christmas carols on the bagpipes. Can you play them all? No, I can't play them all because some of them. Because the some of them, some wide. of them, the notes go. Yeah, the range is too big. You yeah. haven't got the range. How you? did the yeah. bagpipe sign in the Arbor Hall? I thought they were brilliant. I thought that was a great end. I think it's got good acoustics for bagpipes. Ah, and I think, Rory, see, this is this is where you and I differ. The middle drone was a bit off. Gosh, but you much was. more. So basically, I think. <laughs> you know, we were asked. We were interviewed by somebody um, at the Arbor Hall before we went on big, big profile piece where they, she kept trying to ask which one of us was cleverer. And there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that you are much cleverer when it comes to language and music. So Rory, if there's one issue that produced more questions this week than any other, it was Jeremy Clarkson of all people. And he, I don't know if you followed this, but he wrote a pretty vile piece in The Sun where he said that he hated Megan at a cellular level, he hated her as much as he hated Nicola Sturgeon and Rose West. Um, and he, he couldn't wait to the day to see her 
paraded through the streets having people throw excrement at her. Now, he sort of apologised, but it does make you wonder about what the processes are that go through in the editorials. It's completely, no, completely horrifying. And there's something sort of stark naked she was meant to be. So it was both kind of pornographic. Misogynist. Scatological. I mean, it's a very, very disturbing kind of insight into his mind that that's what he fantasizes about. And it's even more disturbing that he wants to make those fantasies public um, and that somehow he thinks that his readers are going to want to share in this sort of horrifying. Well, I, I, I guess that I think there is, there is a little bit about, I mean, I said to, I, when I said on the podcast last week, that I felt sorry for both Harry and Megan for different reasons. And Fiona, when we were walking the dog the next day, said, I don't know what are you on about Megan and Harry. I mean, what are you on about? Um, but I, I think when you're subject, I've had a lot of abuse and a lot of hate, but I think when you're subject to it on that sort of industrial scale across so much of the media on such a regular basis, and I think what happens with parts of our media is that because they're so loud and so outrageous and so over the top with stuff like this, you kind of fight, you, you have to keep hitting ever new levels of hyperbole. And, and they're, they're sort of aware of it, aren't they? Because I was reading that the extremely sort of disturbing Rod Liddle. So he he reflects on this himself. He says that the cycle somehow seems to be that Harry and Meghan put out something and then the press respond with sort of more and more vitriol and bile. And then Harry and Meghan then respond to the vitriol and bile, feeling more and more persecuted and hated, and then produce another documentary or another book. And then Clarkson or Piers Morgan or Rod Little then hit them again. And it sort of created this sort of mad world in which everybody's kind of feeding off each other in a vicious circle of horror. But that's why when you said, when we were at the Albert Hall and we were talking about, you said you despised, you said that one, one of your criticisms was me with that I, I, I can't find a single Labour person to say that I despise. Um, I think despising people takes such an energy. There are some people that I despise, but they're not in the Labour Party, most of them. <laughs> we picked that up. <laughs> but it's clear to say that you hate somebody at a cellular level and you want to parade them through the streets. And by the way, my daughter, Grace, who's a feminist, and um, she said to me, God, Dad, if you ever said anything like that. But of course, Jeremy Clarkson's daughter is also quite a well-known feminist campaigner. So she's come out and said she thought it was, you know, she was really upset by it and I, th- I suspect that's why he has – it wasn't really an apology, but he has sort of said he's he's horrified that the upset that he's caused. But I suspect the Sun will like it. They'll think, you know, we'll get more attention, we get people talking about us. It makes us feel like we're still relevant. <laughs> All right, Roy, well, lovely to talk to you as ever. I hope you're not going to spend too much of the next week on aeroplanes. I'm going to try not to spend too much of next week on aeroplanes. Where are you going to be at Christmas? I'm going to be in Scotland in the house, oh, that, lovely. The house that you know and visited excellent with my little sister and my mother and on that let's finish up the question time all the best <laughs>